Hi, this is Alan Smith. Welcome to the Rare Book Cafe podcast, Rare Book Cafe Raw. You're about to hear the mostly unedited soundtrack of Season 6, Episode 12, the one we call The Bookstagrammer. It features book blogger Gillian Dumas of Portland, Oregon, who also has become an advocate for posting about books she likes on Instagram and has some insights after having done so for some time now. Our host, Ed Markowitz, leads the Cafe Chat that also includes our regulars Mary Kay Watson, Lee Lynn, and Gigi Best. Let's join the conversation. So, Mary Kay, where are you? I'm in, uh, I'm above Morgantown, West Virginia, on top of a mountain above Morgantown, yes. And Mary Kay, you've been moving around. Are you, you're moving from North Carolina, or are you closing down a home? Or um, My husband uh, works for a company that has uh, an office in Winchester, Virginia. So uh, we were renting a house in North Carolina. Now we're renting a house in Winchester, just moved there this week. Um, but we, we own this home in West Virginia. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, Gillian, look what she's wearing. Isn't that I know, gorgeous? I was looking at that and I heard you talking about how you crochet and, and tat and sounds like no, you do all kinds of things. I don't, I don't tat. Tat's the only thing I don't do, but oh. I crochet. Yes. Yeah. No, oh, I, I admire, I admire the talent that it takes to do that. It's beautiful. Thank you. I grew up on a dairy farm. And you either learned how to do things like that, or you were out helping to clean the barn. So, <laughs> ah, yes, that, that sounds very good. I tried um, crocheting when I was when I was younger. My mother taught me how, and I. But everything, I I get too worked up, and so it would go from like this size to this size to this size to this size <laughs> as, as my mood struck. I I was very bad. I was I was very bad. It does do that. Yeah, my daughter crochets like that. Yeah. So you're both in Portland. Ed and uh, I are both in Portland, right? Yes, nice, right. nice. The Rose City. Right, yeah, uh, the Rose City. There's, there's probably about 15 Rose Cities in America. I, I went and took a look at it, the, the Rose City Reader, and I would just wondered if people would uh, think of Portland first. and then Occasionally they think I'm in um, Pasadena, but... Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. But usually people understand it's Portland. Yeah. So is this where the um, Shakespeare Theater is? Um, is there a that, that's um, gosh, it just fell out of my head. Ashland. Ashland. Yeah. That, uh, that's where Sophia. Sophia, our other the, the person who does the uh, the book binding right. and, and right. schedules the book binding guests. Right. She lives in Ashland. Okay. Mm. Nice. Ashland is wonderful. It's about six hours south of Portland. Okay. Right. Yeah, I've never been, never been there. Yeah. Now here in Portland, we did have our own Shakespeare uh, festival in the summer. They would put on two plays in mm-hmm. local uh, Portland parks. Mm-hmm. And uh, my oldest son did it for six years. In the last two years, he directed. Yeah. Oh, wow. I loved that. I used to love going to those. Yeah. You get to bring a picnic and sit around. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. He did the Merchant in Venice over at the, um, oh, over there, like on. Fourth and right off the PSU campus, where there's a 
uh, it, it was great because they had a big fountain and a, oh, and a nice. small pond. Mm -hmm. a great setting for the merchant. Yeah, that sounds like a great setting. Yeah. Uh, uh, Gillian, uh, Mary Kay is an illustrator of, amongst other things, Shakespeare. I looked at your website. They were beautiful, absolutely beautiful. I mean, your work is just gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I, want, I hope we're going to talk about it once it starts. Uh, uh, like, I want to know where your illustrations go in uh, your own books or in other things? I, I'm sure you're going to dig into that because I'm interested to find out. Well, I'm more interested in what you're doing. Oh. <laughs> you're going you're going to go, have to go back and uh, watch some previous issues to find out about Mary Kay because today it's all about you, Gillian. Yes, oh. today. <laughs> oh, book blogging. Yes, the world of book blogging. It's a, um, it's a rabbit hole. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, well, so then it's a, then you'll have to tell me before we get started. Where well, do tell, you, her, tell her right now. We've got five minutes. Yeah, do you write your own books with your illustrations or what? What I'm doing are um, I've done uh, Richard III and I have done A Midsummer Night's Dream. And I'm working on Hamlet right now. And what I've done is I've illustrated every page, every scene, every page is illustrated with very little verbiage. But I'm telling the story so that um, it's easy to understand mm -hmm. and illustrating with that. Because when I grew up, I was really interested in Shakespeare. I read um, I read Conan Doyle and I read Edgar Allan Poe and I read Shakespeare because I thought Shakespeare would make me smart. I was really young reading it and didn't understand, you know, barely a word that I read. I would read maybe a page and get the gist of it. And um, so I've been an artist all my life. Um, I, my mother was a potter. And so I grew up with a lot of art around me. And when I started drawing and painting at some point when I got older, I thought, you know, I'm going to write Shakespeare stories the way they can be understood by someone, you know, <laughs> some kid growing up on a dairy farm in West Virginia and illustrate them. So that's, that's what I'm doing with my talent. Oh, that's fantastic. I love wow. that. So what's the format? Book size or, or graphic novel size? size yeah. or? No, they're book size. I have one right here. So this is uh, this is my Richard III. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so, and then you can see every page. There's very little. I do have pages of, okay, here's a page of text. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple pages of text. Um, even the text pages are illustrated. Yeah. Oh, those are gorgeous. Thank you. So there's yeah. a couple pages of text. Um, even the text pages are illustrated. Yeah. We're getting a feedback. There's a little. Oh, sorry, that, that was me. I, I also get on the uh, the phone oh, so I can message. IPhone. Yeah. I shut my iPhone down. Um, I turn my front porch light on because my doorbell doesn't work if my front porch light is on. <laughs> the wiring's messed up somehow. And I did an I did an episode, one of the first episodes I did, and my mail lady came, rang the doorbell, and of course when she pulled in the driveway, I have a driveway buzzer. The driveway buzzer went off, and I think my, my dad called me on my cell phone at the same time. <laughs> So now I've shut it all down. All right. So Ed, how long have you been doing this show? 
Ooh, I'm only six, seven, eight weeks. Uh, not that long. Um, Alan, Alan, our executive producer, uh, wanted to try a different format, and um, someone told him that I was gregarious. <laughs> <laughs> so you got targeted. <laughs> Did Sophia, yeah. Sophia um, hook you guys up? Yeah, it was Sophia. Sophia awesome. ratted me out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. We have someone on here already, so I think we're. Yeah, that's Warren. I was just going to say good morning, Warren. W a r r e n. Send. Mm -hmm. There we go. I don't know who else. David. David's uh, hello, David. David's uh, uh, Wanderville. We're all coming alive here. Um, that's a beautiful room that you're in, Gillian. A study. Is that your normal library workroom? It is my normal little study workroom here. I've been working from home since uh, Corona started. And so I set up a little desk and dragged my office chair home and have been in here for about the last then what, 15 months. So <laughs> exactly. yeah, it's now turning into the usual rat's nest that my office becomes. So what do you do for a living? I'm gonna. I, I'm a lawyer. I have a little two-lady lawyer office with me and one other lady lawyer. We have a uh, kind of an odd practice. We represent adults who were sexually abused as kids. So wow. it's um, we have cases all over the country, but out of our Portland office. Yeah, I love the lady thing. You know, just yeah. <laughs> la la lady lawyers, two lady lawyers yeah. uh, yeah. fighting a good that. fight. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Good for you. Yeah. So uh, we're involved right now. Degrees in town here at uh, Lewis and Clark. At Lewis and Clark, that's right. That's right. Other and, than uh, other than the year that you spent abroad, and actually you were in uh, Shakespeare's backyard for a while. I was. I spent my um, I spent one of my years of college in um, Oxford doing a doing a program for study abroad, like international students. But it was based in in Oxford, taking classes with English lit classes with. Oxford professors. That's wonderful. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Well, I think the countdown has hit zero. So uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Rare Book Cafe, the book lovers rendezvous, where the topics are priceless and the conversation is free. We are the only weekly live streamed internet devoted show dedicated to rare and collectible books and the people who love them. We're here every Saturday at 12.30 Eastern Time, 9.30 Central, and oh, come on, you're big kids. You can figure out what time it is. And if you don't catch us live, you can catch us anytime, 24-7, because we're now available on not only Facebook and YouTube, but our illustrious uh, executive producer and engineer, uh, Alan Smith, has turned this into a podcast as well, so you can listen to it in your car. I do want to give a shout out to two other ladies. We were talking about two ladies, two ladies, uh, uh, Mariana Prosinko and Inga Viznetsa with BeLive. BeLive is our platform that we use here on the show. And they're in the Ukraine. I have no idea what time it is in the Ukraine. But uh, thank you, ladies, for making this program go so well. Um, so... Uh, we're going to have our uh, uh, a nice mix of uh, live folks and some uh, pre-recorded uh, sessions this week. Uh, we're going to have some of our, our usual uh, uh, Mary Kay and our 
guest of the week, Gillian Dumas from the Rose City Reader, is uh, with me on screen. Uh, and after uh, we're done with the first segment, we're going to go to Mary Kay on her own. She'll be talking about the great illustrator, John Audubon. Uh, then uh, we're going to transition to Lee Lynn on wildflowers. What a perfect segment for today. I know here in Portland, it's absolutely beautiful. We're, uh, the, the, the tulips, the daffodil, everything's just a bloom. The trees, it's wonderful. Things Found in Books by David Hess of Orange Man Books in Orange, California. Orange Books in Orange, California. Uh, Gigi Best with an anthology on poetry. And uh, we got some really good comments a couple of weeks ago when we did those pre-recorded sessions on poems, because this is National Poetry Month. If we have any time left, we've got a couple of poems to play. So um, first, let me introduce you to Gillian Dumas. Uh, Alan, could you put up her CV if you have it there? Gillian is the founder and editor of uh, Rose City Reader, a blog, and you can find her on Instagram at Gillian Dumas. Last year, get this everybody, she reviewed 115 books and wrote 155 blog postings. <laughs> that doesn't even count how many Instagram she did. It's got to be at least triple that. Welcome, Julian. <laughs> nice to be here, Ed and Mary Kay. Nice to be here. How are you so productive? Well, thank you. Yeah. And I don't know that I reviewed that many books. I read that many books. And I did a lot of blog posts, a lot of Instagram posts, but um, yeah, I, I like to read. You can see the books in the back. I, I've always been a big reader. Why don't you start out by telling us what's the difference between a book blogger and a bookstagrammer? Sure. Well, book blogs came first. Um, you know, that's just uh, people getting on the internet and writing about books. Everybody, lots of people have blogs, either as part of a website or as a freestanding website that they just call a blog and post post their thoughts and musings about whatever they want to. And and book blogs were a big part of that. Mine has been around since uh, 2008. Uh, I write book reviews, thoughts about books, book lists. I'm an obsessive book list maker and follower. Um, and then Bookstagram is is not its own thing. Bookstagram is just a hashtag used on Instagram. But book lovers soon found that they could sort of meet each other on Instagram if they used that hashtag Bookstagram. Uh, and it's a lot of them use it for blogging about books, but on Instagram where the posts are a little bit shorter and they're very visual because every everything you do on Instagram has to have a picture. So people take pictures of books, either the book they're reading or the book they just got or a stack of their favorite books and and then they write something about it. So it's, it's like blogging, um, but it's done on Instagram and people find each other instead of the mysterious ways people find a blog, they find each other on Instagram by using hashtags, uh, which is the little, you know, the sign for a pound sign with a word behind it. Um, so okay, I want to jump into a little bit of controversy here. Uh, I threw something out this week to both you and Mary Kay. And I said that I felt as though bookstagrammers, those doing uh, book blogging on Instagram, were the illustrators of the new digital publishing. 
And you both got a little, hmm, look at me a little scant. Go, well, maybe not <laughs> illustrators, but is there a word you could substitute for illustrators? Would you say uh, the curators? Uh, a lot of people are doing photography. I mean, photography is art, art is illustration. Can you make the case either way? Yeah. Mary Kay, you want to tackle it or you want me to go first? You go ahead and go first. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I just said uh, illustration seems to me to be like what Mary Kay does, where it's actually like drawn or, or you know, actually illustrating. Um, so it, Bookstagram for me is at least more just taking pictures of things. I don't actually like do anything artsy with it other than maybe like try to get the light right and and make sure the angle is there make sure you can read it make sure it's in focus um but uh but yeah i mean we are illustrating our vision of what the book our book world looks like at least where you know we are trying to illustrate the perfect little book reading um you know scene or whatever lots of people are much more artistic than i am i'm i'm um, pretty cloddy i just want to like write about my thoughts about the book so i need a picture to go with it otherwise i can't put anything on instagram some people though are beautiful about it and i would agree that they are illustrating a a dreamy book world a bookscape almost where they take uh you know Dreamy. pictures with little cups of coffee and like fairy lights and and you know and it's beautiful flowers and stuff and they are definitely very artistic um they write about the books too you know sometimes in very eloquent lovely ways um but for them it's all about the aesthetic of what the the pictures are looking like and i i agree those people are artists uh, visual artists in a way so definitely illustrating their ideal book world um and then there are more uh, verbal people like me who really are just there to write about books and chit chat with other book lovers um more of the more of the the um social side social side of bookstagramming which is what i'm there for how about you mary Kay? Well, where do you weigh in I actually think that this is the future. I, I think that the computer, what we're on now, this is the future. I think the digital world is the future. Um, I think that um, these people that take these beautiful pictures, they're, that's just as much art as what you're writing. I mean, the books are art, what you're writing is art. It's all art, music is art. Um, so it's, it's subjective. I think this is right now a great way to um, sell people on the book, to merchandise your book, um, to get it out there. But I think in the future, uh, yeah, I don't even know if we're going to have, you know, uh, Tabor books anymore, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So I think the digital world is is the world that we're looking toward. Um, so I, I don't think you can discount it. Yeah, people said the same thing. <clears throat> I mentioned something in the email about the beef noodle soup. And when Andy Warhol did his beef noodle soup, I mean, a lot of people said, a lot of artists said, this is not art. Um, but uh, it is art. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's subjective. It's, mm -hmm. so it's, it, it's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Right. And that's an interesting point you made about whether we're going to get away from books because of this. I think almost the one thing you do need for Bookstagram is an actual book because you need to take a picture 
of a book. You, <laughs> you can't have, you're not creating, you're not creating a, a book or creating a, any kind of written word, you know, digitally. You creating are, a book is a prop. Yeah, you're using the book as a prop. So yeah. even if you're going to write about that book or your thoughts about that book, you first need a physical book to take a picture of before you can even write about it. So, um, and one of the th comments of, of uh, uh, that people, <laughs> yeah, no, no books. I, I think Bookstagram is actually um, inspires people to get more physical books in their lives. Um, rather than the other way, the people who do read uh, um, digitally, read on their Kindle or read on their app, have a hard time with Bookstagram because there's nothing to take a picture of. Right, right. I, I well, we, we certainly can't dismiss Mary Kay's timeline. We've gone from cave paintings to, you know, woodcuts to crumble right. lithography to etchings. This is what's happening. We can't ignore that it's here. Yeah. Uh, and we certainly can't predict how it's going to morph in, in the coming future, but it will remain, obviously. I think, I think you're causing Alan to have a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> all right let me change subjects here a little bit um gillian last year i said you reviewed about 115 books and uh you give your books roses any special breed of rose uh, no whatever the rose emoji is on google because pink rose you, you ranked your books uh, one through five roses and uh, yeah. you had about uh 15 authors with five roses last year uh, some of the trends that I see that most of them are, are uh, second half of the 20th century, uh, your, your named authors, Stephen King, Colson Whitehead, uh, G.K. Chesterton, Michael Pollan, Adichie, uh, 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 the great African writer. Uh, is the classics still the classics? For me, they are. I always, I, I kind of joke that my favorite um, subgenre is mid-century British gypsomaniacs. But I, um, but you know, I, I do kind of. I, I, I love the backlist. I read a lot of um, out-of-print stuff. A lot of, um, you know, Iris Murdoch, uh, Barbara Pym, all of the mid-century British authors are still my favorite. I try to get a little bit out of my comfort zone by reading some of the big prize winners every year, which is how I get around to people like Colson Whitehead and, um, you know, and some of, and some of the others, but I try to read the Pulitzer Prize winner every year and the National Book Award and the Booker, you know, so I, I try to try to stretch my wings a little, but boy, I, I, I'm still going through, you know, trying to read all classic mysteries classic sure stuff from the you know i'm still still working my way through the 20th century it's gonna be a while before i get to the 21st century <laughs> and we're uh, 20 years we're one fifth of the way through this century is there anybody who you would uh, whose name you would dare to throw out that uh, may turn to be a classic uh 20 or 30 or 50 years from now you know i think there, there are some that everybody recognizes like Colson Whitehead, Zadie Smith, those people are still, you know, that there are reasons why they are popular because their their books are their books are great. Um, there and then there are some that are just one offs that like come across every once in a while. Oh my gosh, I just last week read Mystery Man by Colin Bateman, an Irish guy. 
I've never heard of Colin Bateman before. So there's always right. something new. My law partner said, you've got to read this. She said, she um, got, I got the audio book because I read with my ears a lot. So I read the audio book. I was laughing so hard. I looked like a crazy woman. I was walking around the neighborhood park and I was laughing out loud and like tears, like wiping my eyes with it. I was, it, it was so funny. It's a murder mystery, but hilarious. Like so, fu so funny. And I guess there's a whole series of them. I didn't know. I'd never heard of this man, Colin Michael Bateman. Bateman or our guest, Michael Bateman. Colin, Colin, Colin. Bateman. Colin Colin oh my god track them down they are hilarious so and he's 21st century i mean he only started writing in the two 2000s or the aughts or the whatever we call these teens yeah so really that good. happened to me on a plane one time i was reading christopher moore's uh lust lizard of melancholy valley and i was laughing and laughing and laughing and the person in the seat next to me called the stewardess over because he thought i was <laughs> having an emotional breakdown or something. <laughs> yes. I love it when that happens. You think that, oh, you know, I'm never going to read a funny book again. And then something like that just zings you. And you're like, oh, thank goodness. Yeah. Mary Kay, a, what's on your nightstand? I, I have a question. Um, Please. Uh, what do you think of the platform, the Instagram platform? Because I, I use it too, but I don't use it as much because... Um, I can't do as much with my pictures. I sometimes have to format my pictures before I put anything on there. And um, it it just seems like it is just for the pictures. There's, um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, it is. It is limited in that way. You don't have freedom. It's a square. You have to get your, your picture on a square. So I can understand like with you, uh, you were showing your book, to me earlier your pictures are rectangle and i thought the same thing like you, how do you get that on an instagram you'd have to set it on something to make it square and um and yeah so it you are kind of limited or as i like to think about it you need to be creative so you need to get your picture shown in a way that you can make it fit so it's square and think about it rather than cropping your own picture create a background on it so that your picture is part of the overall frame, right. square frame. And then you can talk about it because I do think that by, by making it in a visual way, you can reach more people than you can. Cause there's so many people on Instagram right now and you can, and you can interact with them in a very fast way. They are all there. They don't have to find you where you are. You can go to them where they are, which I think is huge for a for book marketers, authors, everybody. And the interaction is fast. You're not it's not a big investment in time, like creating your whole blog and then trying to get people to come to it. I mean, that's that is climbing a mountain. I've been doing it for, you know, 14 years and I have, you know, and I've got like 4,000 people who read my blog and that's huge, but it took me 14 years to get those people who read my blog every month. And, you know, with Instagram, I've been on Instagram for a year and I've got that many people who read my Instagram account. So, so really the matrix is what made um, the bookstagram appear the way it is now because it is square and they had to get creative. So it, it's almost like it forced people into doing that. I can see that now. Exactly. 
exactly. You there's, have a, to... there's a couple of free apps out there, Mary Kay. I, I use one called Square Fit. You download it for free. A couple, three touches of the screen, and it just makes your picture perfectly yeah. fit and ready to go on Instagram. But your your phone takes square pictures. You just right. set it to take a square picture, and you then you just aim it at whatever you're taking, and you have to take a square picture. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It, what you can't do is think like, oh, I'm going to take this picture that I have and use it on Instagram. You have to think, I'm going to take a picture for Instagram, you know, and I'm going to lay it out on my dining room table and I'm going to take some pretty picture and I'm going to set the square feature on my camera so that it fits Instagram. Interesting. Okay. You know, it's, trust me, I am not creative. So, <laughs> It made me, it made me think, and I like it because it stretched my brain and made, you know, I, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I'm like the most linear thinking person there is. I am not right brain. So I like it because it made me think in a different way than I'm used to thinking. Right. But you are creative if you're doing these book reviews. I, I, I guess I'd like to think that that's one yeah. of the reasons I do it to make me think diff in a different way. Yes. Hey, uh, before we uh, end this segment, we've got a few more minutes to go. I just want to remind all of our listeners that uh, coming up right after this is uh, Mary Kay is going to stay with us and, and talk to us about uh, John Audubon, the great illustrator. Uh, after that, uh, the story behind the story with Lynn Thompson, uh, our other regular guest, uh, Gigi from uh, Florida, is going to be here with a, a poetry anthology and uh things found in books. So uh, we've got a lot more to come. Just hold on there. But uh, thanks for staying with us. And uh, this has been quite lively. I like this format. I like uh, I like the dialogue. You, you ladies are great. Yeah, Gillian will have to come back because it's really interesting what she's talking about. And, there, and there's more to dive into. Oh, there's always stuff to talk about. I mean, and there are so many people on Bookstagram who know it a lot better than I do. So I'm almost like an outsider looking in. Uh, speaking of ladies, I want to put you on the spot here a little bit, Gillian, of your uh, 15 authors with five roses. I think only two of them were women. That must have been just a, uh, a a coincidence of last year because some of my favorite authors are women. I think, like I said, like Iris Murdoch and um, and I'm reading right now the book I'm reading. I didn't. I should have brought it down here is Florence King, one of my favorites, uh, Southern, uh, an American Southern author uh, who wrote in the 70s to 2000s. So I'm reading her anthology right now, one of my all time favorites. So and P.D. James, when it comes to mysteries, mm -hmm. she is mm -hmm. another favorite. So, yeah, most of my I'm about 50 50. Did you, what was her name? Florence King? I'm, I'm not familiar with her. Florence King. She wrote mostly like nonfiction, like uh, essays, book reviews, commentaries. She didn't write a lot of fiction. She wrote uh, sociology almost like, but funny, funny as heck. Very, oh. um, very uh, funny commentary on life in the South. Very, um, some of it was a little raunchy, but very, very funny. Well, we're going to have to ask Lee Lynn. Lee Lynn is from Georgia. She's one of our uh, regular uh, hosts on here. She'll be up later in the segment. I'll ask her. Uh, she she knows things mostly Southern. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yeah. Florence King is a uh, very, very bitingly funny um, Southern author. Very good. 
Yes. Uh, you, uh, so you, you, you put so much time and energy in writing all of these blogs, hundreds, thousands, millions of words. You once, I understand, went off uh, for your uh, sophomore year abroad uh, to the land of the words in, in uh, England. Why not mm -hmm. just write your own book? You must have one bottled up inside. But what if it's in Sanskrit? <laughs> um, right. Uh, you know, I've always thought that like, oh, my goodness, everybody has a book inside them. Right. Uh, but, it, you know, writing a book, I think, is really hard. You know, dialogue is is tough plot really hard you know there's a lot of there's a lot of mediocre books out in the world and i don't think i need to contribute to that <laughs> how far do you go into a book before you determine it's mediocre okay that is a bad question i am so teutonic in my reading habits i can probably list on one hand the books that i have not finished once i started mm. so um i yeah i I pretend that I have a rule that I read a hundred pages and then we'll quit if I don't like it, but I, I never, I never quit. I think. Um, well, I have to I say the book blogger that makes you very fair. I mean, you, you seem to be very fair and honest and, and just for the, the listeners in, you buy all your own books. Nobody sends you books uh, free to review for them. I do get, um, I don't get a lot of review copies. I do get review copies from some of our local publishers here in Portland, some like um, OSU Press, our local university press, uh, Forest, uh, Forest Avenue Press, one of our really good local independent publishers sends me some of their books. Tin so House, there are, what's that? Tin House, have you ever read any books from Tin House? I, and Tin House has in the past, although not lately. Um, and so some of some of the local ones will send me their books to review, and I do those. But I don't I don't take review copies from a lot of lot of people. I just don't have time, oh. and I don't like the obligation. I have a question. Yeah. Please. Do you read the introductions? Always, and the and the acknowledgments. I mean, I have to stop myself from reading the index in nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> I admit, I don't read the prefaces. You don't? Oh. I don't know. I don't like to be told what to think about the book before I read it. Yeah, I, um, I've i only recently um, stopped and waited till the after I read the book to go back and read the introduction because I've gotten burned by a couple of spoilers that um, bother me. But no, I do always read the introduction. Yeah. Great. Well, that was fun, Gillian. Thank you for being with us today. I hope you'll come back sometime. I will. This uh, has been great. All right. Before you go, we want to remind everybody, Rose City Reader uh, book blog. You can find it by putting those three words in your uh, Google search bar and at Gillian Dumas, G-I-L-I-O-N-D-U-M-A-S, just like the famous author Dumas. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Nice go enjoy the sun. Thanks. Cheers. Okay. Well, uh, she's been with us for the first segment of the show, and she's going to do the second all on her own. Mary Kay Watson, the inspiration of John James Audubon. Mary Kay is an extremely talented book illustrator and book lover uh, from West Virginia, currently living in West Virginia. Mary Kay has photos of a trip to Audubon's home in Key West, Florida. 
Mary Kay, take it away. I actually used to spend my winters in Key West. I spent um, time in Key West. I had a place down there for about 30 years. So uh, I've been to Audubon's house several times and I, I know some things about Audubon um, because I got interested in him from being in Key West. Uh, if Alan wants to put the uh, picture of the Audubon house up right now and some of the pictures that I sent in, um, that is that is a postcard of the Audubon house. That's how it looked probably back in the early 80s. And um, I went there with my mentor. I, I Well, actually, she came with me to Key West, and we went to paint um, at different places in Key West. And the Audubon house in the gardens was one of those places. Um, so we were there in the garden painting. I think there's another photo of that. And um, photos of the side of the house. That's that's a side of the house. And um, this is in the garden painting. Um, there is also a picture of a potting shed that uh, where we're sitting at the table, that's an entrance into the side of the house. And where we're sitting at the table, you can see the potting shed um, right there. That is the potter's shed. And uh, the people that take care of the house would go out and pick bananas. And while we're painting, we're eating some of the bananas that are growing in the garden. He also showed a picture of an orange flower and that is called a Geiger tree. That is a tree that John Audubon named for John Geiger. John Geiger is the, is the original owner of the Audubon house. Interesting fact about the Audubon house is uh, most people think that um, John Audubon stayed at the Audubon house. He didn't actually stay there. He stayed at the house next door. The Audubon house was built 15 years after John Audubon was, was in Key West. And I, I think I sent a picture of the house that's next door. It's actually the gift shop now for the Audubon house. Um, John Geiger was a wrecker. He would go out in his um, ship and he would um, salvage boats that would wreck along the keys. The keys are very shallow. Um, if there's even a little storm, ships would get washed up on the uh, on the flats, they call them, where the mangroves are. And um, so he made his money from uh, wrecking and um, salvaging. He was in Key West when, when John Audubon was there and um, I'm not sure, well, no one's sure if John Audubon actually stayed with him or stayed with Dr. Benjamin Strobel. Dr. Benjamin Strobel was the harbor master in Key West at the time. He was originally from uh, South Carolina, from Charleston. And uh, when John Audubon made the arrangements to go paint uh, the birds in Key West in the area, he contacted uh, John Geiger, and of course, Benjamin Strobel. Uh, interesting thing about the birds in Key West and all of the birds in, in his book, uh, he didn't do the backgrounds on most of those paintings. Someone else did the backgrounds. Uh, he also had artists who did the foliage. Um, the I call it the elephant book. The, uh, it's a double elephant book. Um, it's 36 inches, or I'm sorry, 38 inches by 26 inches. That is the original book that John Audubon did his Birds uh, birds of North America for. Uh, 
the paintings were actually done on single sheets. And when they were printed, um, you had to subscribe to get them. You got, I believe it was um, five paintings a month, something like that. And there were uh, 435 paintings, I believe, all together, um, something around that number. And most of the people, when they, uh, they the subscriptions were $1,000 to get all of the paintings that uh, would eventually be done for the books. Most people had the books then bound in leather. If you look on a books right now, there is a copy, uh, which is uh, the, I believe, um, four or five books of, because there's also a book that has a description of the birds. Um, there's a copy for sale for $9 million. And so there's a lot of information about, yes, there's a lot of information about that book in that listing. So I won't go into all the details about the book. I'll just talk about um, what I know about John Audubon. And I'm going to do this this week and next week because there's just, there's so much information. John Audubon was born in Haiti. He, uh, then became a French citizen because his father took him back to France, um, back to his wife who accepted the child as his own. And um, in his teens, his father acquired a fake passport for him so that he could emigrate to the, to the United States and avoid conscription into the army during the Napoleonic Wars. And on his way over, he got sick. Um, he, he, he got seasick a lot. He, uh, his father was a naval officer um, who owned a plantation in Haiti, but his son did not develop into a seaman the way he wanted to. But when he got to America, he was sick. He was taken to a home near Philadelphia and he was taught English and taken care of by Quakers. That's where he met his wife, um, she, her father owned a farm next door and um, he, he married um, his wife a few months later. Actually, I think maybe five, five years later, but um, some of the things that you read about John Audubon, you'll read one thing in one book, then you'll read something else in another book. And um, a lot of times, some of the things that you read about him were things that he actually said that people proved were not true. He's a, he's credited with being the first person um, in this country to ban birds. Um, you put the little bands around their, their feet who, who claims to have done that, um, but that's been disclaimed. So uh, he was uh, very boisterous. He was kind of an arrogant man, um, but people liked him. When he tried to take his drawings um, to Philadelphia, to the museum and got in touch with the scientific people and um, people who were natural, real naturalists, um, they, they liked his drawings, they liked his work, but they didn't really embrace him um, because there's another side to John Audubon when it comes to uh, the birds. He, he loved his birds but I have to tell you, I read a story in this book. This is by John Hersey. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning author. And he had a home in Martha's Vineyard in the 
summertime, he would stay there. In the wintertime, he was in Key West. And he did a lot of research on um, John Audubon and Benjamin Strobel. Benjamin Strobel had a diary. Um, John Hersey read some of the entries in the diary the time for the times that John Audubon was here. And um, I'll get into some of that next week. But um, Actually, uh, Mary Kay, something I think I might have missed there. Where did he uh, get his actual artistic talent, his artistic training? Who taught him how to draw a bird? He, I have no idea. He just always drew. It's a, um, an autodidact. Yes, he just, probably like me. I was drawing when I was a baby. Um, I've always drawn. I don't remember a time when I wasn't drawing. Um, Toulouse-Lautrec was the same way. Um, his father wanted him to be a big he-man and he, he was always drawing. Uh, John Audubon, always loved birds. He, he always said he just adored them. He was enchanted by them. And so maybe that's, you know, what started his drawing. But now he did take lessons. Um, when, when he was in Pittsburgh, he taught lessons. He, he um, I mean, he got lessons from a artist when he was in Pittsburgh drawing birds. He traveled all over the country to draw his. What, were, what was the medium uh, of his originals? Were they, were they oils, water? pastels there are, there are watercolors and the originals were um he did watercolors and um benjamin strobel and john geiger both commented people around him commented about how he would get up at three o'clock in the morning they'd go out on these ships they'd um they'd get these birds and then he would come back at night he would stuff the bird because they killed the birds. Mm -hmm. He would stuff the bird and sit there and do this beautiful watercolor and go to bed and get a couple hours of sleep. Um, but his the books were made on copper etchings. So um, they printed the, the page and then they were hand colored. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this was before they were using the lithography. So it was all, uh, that's why they... Nine nine million dollars. Hey, one last question. Um, you you said that he would paint the bird, but he had apprentices that would paint the backgrounds in the in in, in the. Uh, they weren't they weren't apprentices apprentices. They were just people that you know um, were chums of his or. Uh, what other... came from, What came first, the bird or the tree? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. But, um, but yes, he had other artists that he was friends with that would travel with him and they would do some of the background uh, work for him. Um, now, that's not to say that he didn't do some of it himself. Sure, but, sure. Uh, but yeah, he had trouble being embraced in the beginning. A lot of people um, who were scientists, uh, people in museums that he thought were going to uh, love the, because he was trying to sell this book. You know, he he was working on the book and trying to sell the book at the same time because he needed money to get the book printed. He, his dream, he had a dream. His, his, we all have a dream um, as an artist. And his dream was to paint the birds of North America exactly the size that they were. So when he painted the flamingo and the white heron, he, you can, you can see the pictures, the birds' necks are, um, here's one of a great white heron in a book that I bought. 
at the Florida Antiquarian Book Fair for probably $5. But you can see where his neck is stretched way down to the ground because he was trying to fit that on a piece of paper that was um, 30, 38 inches high and 26 inches wide. Hey, Lee's with us, Lee oh. Lynn. We've got a good lineup this week. This is a great segue. Being spring, we're going to go from birds to wildflowers. Lee, welcome. How was your trip to, you. to Florida? It was fine. Um, five days in Disney with a six-year-old and an eight-year-old uh, can make you feel your age, that's for sure. <laughs> but we had a great trip. And then um, one husband that acted like an eight-year-old? What? Now, this is the, the real eight-year-old, a real six-year-old. Uh, my son and daughter-in-law, um, um, my son pretty much acted like about a 15-year-old, I think, on the trip. But we had a good trip. The children were surprised. They didn't know they were going. And um, um, But the standing in line, even at 35% capacity, the standing in line was still rough. You know, we stood in line a lot for five-minute rides. Thank you, Mary Kay. We'll see you next week on James Audubon Part 2. Right. Hey, uh, Lee, I don't know if you were uh, listening to the earlier part of the show when uh, Gillian Dumas was, was with us, and uh -huh. uh, she was touting the works of Florence right. King. Are you familiar with yes, Florence I King? Am. Yes, I am. Um, Florence King was a funny, funny, funny woman. And a lot of her um, observations of Southerners were fairly accurate. Um, she was probably a little more conservative than to my taste, but I remember one thing, and I don't know which of her books it was in, but I've I remembered it for a long time that she talked about that people enter a house, but Southerners enter a house, I'm not sure what the word she was, on streams of conversation or something like that, that Southerners come into a house talking and probably <laughs> never shut up, you know, after that. But she is very, was very funny. And, um, and I think her books are pretty easy to find. Um, I never read a lot of her uh, columns in National Review, but uh, some of her early books um, were, were very popular for a while. And, you know, we all read them and laughed about them. Um, so cool. yeah, I, I do know who, who she was. Um, and what do you have for us this week? Well, I have flowers for us this week. Um, I don't, I didn't know much about wild plants when I was growing up. I camped a lot with the Girl Scouts, but we seemed to be more concerned with identifying poison ivy than anything else. Um, I knew goldenrod because it was Alabama's state flower until Lurleen Wallace changed it to the camellia. But after Bob and I were married, we would go to his father's family's home place outside of Calhoun. And while the house and the barn were in ruins, there were wooded areas that had a lot of early spring wildflowers like trillium and hepatica, woodland flocks, uh, shrubs like sweet shrub and cat's paw. And my father-in-law, and of course these were his plants, so he thought he could do as he pleased, and I guess that was true. His method of transplanting was pretty much to just jerk that plant out of the ground stick it in the car, take it home, dig a little hole and put it back in there. And um, and I guess it worked because I have a 40 year old sweet shrub that started out as a little stick that's about five feet wide now. So I, I think his, uh, his system probably did work. But 
many, many trips to North Carolina mountains provided an education on wildflowers and native plants. And little by little, we expanded the wilder areas in our yard. Um, I don't have entirely wildflowers. I have a lot of, of hybrids as well, but, um, and I'm not a botanist and I prefer common names to botanical names. And I'll probably make a lot of mistakes on wildflowers today. But um, originally, of course, all flowers were wildflowers. And um, going back, let's start with Shakespeare. Let's get a little literature in here. Uh, most of us are familiar with the litany of blooms that Oberon describes to Puck when he's describing Titania's sleeping place. Um, uh, Eglantine, and Alan, if you'll show number one, which is a picture of a um, print of Eglantine, uh, that's it on the left. It's a kind of rose, also known as sweetbriar. Um, the other side is, side is golden ragwort, which we have gracious plenty of around here. Um, Eglantine, um, woodbine, which is honeysuckle, wild thyme, um, violets, and of course in Hamlet, there's Ophelia's mad scene where uh, flowers and herbs send messages. I think we all recognize rosemary, that's for remembrance. Uh, pansies uh, are for thoughts, columbine for insincerity, rue for regret, daisies for in in innocence. I was in Disney World last week and as part of the Flower Festival in Epcot, there's a Shakespeare Garden in the UK area and many of these flowers show up in that. It was really very, very pretty. The language of flowers, which tells you what the bloom symbolized, was popular in Shakespeare's time, but probably reached a peak in Victorian and with Victorians. And even today, brides may choose orange blossom for purity, uh, lily of the valley for pure love, and pink roses for happiness. And, and a lot of books were written on the language of flowers, uh, particularly in the late 1800s. Wild plants were, of course, used for medicinal purposes. Um, Alan, if you'll take that down, I'm going to hold a book up. Okay, this is a recent paperback copy of Culpepper's Complete Herbal, which originally came out as the English physician in 1652 and then became Culpepper's Complete Herbal in 63, that's 1653. Um, Nicholas Culpepper was something of a rebel. He believed that the poor should have access to medical care, uh, mostly by treating themselves with the assistance of his books. He was against procedures such as bloodletting, which was extremely popular, but he also used astrology as a determining factor on what herbal remedies to use for particular, um, particular diseases. His book is still in print and, um, and, and I've actually, and I've sold a few later editions, not an original, which goes for a lot these days. Um, I found one that I think was about $5,000. Um, but, but I've known people whose approach to medicine is, is of a herbal nature who still refer to Culpepper's as, um, as the really definitive uh, book on, on this type of medicine. Uh, 
the lure of wildflowers has remained through the years as a profusion of books testifies. One of my favorites is How to Know the Wildflowers, written in 1893 by Mrs. William Starr Dana, um, illustrated by Marion Satterley. And this is number two, A, B, and C. Alan? Or just number two? There we go. Um, hmm, I didn't crop that very well. Um, this is not the first printing. The first printing had a few color plates in it. Um, this is the year of the first, but it does not have the color plates. And, um, um, but it does have, uh, if you'll go to the next one, um, it has the, the drawings by Satterley. Uh, the book was written, uh, Mrs. Dana's husband died of flu a few years prior to this, and she sought relief from her grief by long walks in the country, accompanied by her friend Satterley. And the book grew out of that, though she did consult a lot of botanists. Um, this was not just her observations, but was a well-researched and was a surprising bestseller. Um, uh, the, uh, the book uh, went through a number of different printings very early on and influenced um, another writer. Most of you are probably familiar with Margaret Armstrong because of her uh, Art Nouveau book bindings. And she wrote a book influenced by Mrs. Dana's book called The Field Book of Western Wildflowers. And this is a, a recent copy of it. Um, first edition of it going right now for around eight or nine hundred dollars. Um, and she illustrated it herself. And so the drawings in here, which are, you know, from if I can get it to where we can see them, which are from her her. Um, this is west of the Rocky Mountains uh, are from her trips um, are done from life. And it's an interesting book. Um, the um, a lot of other wildflower books followed. Uh, the Museum of the State University of New York published a great big two volume work in 1917, and that's number three, Alan. That was that had color plates, and then now, well, that's still from um, okay, here we go. That one, and then I have a picture from the interior of it. There we go. Um, that is a picture of northern twin flower, which I'm not familiar with. I have twin leaf in my yard, but I'm not real sure what that is. But about three years after the books came out, they did um, a folder of just the color plates from the book, you know, which I'm sure a lot of people framed and, and things like that. Um, if you can look behind me, if you'll take that down. I brought down, um, if you can see behind me, some some um, color plates from an 1894 book of wildflowers that um, I picked up at a flea market in tatters. I mean, the covers were off, the pages were being were stuffed in a plastic bag, and so this book was not demolished to um, to mat these prints, but 
we were doing a couple of antique shows and it seemed like a good thing to have. You know, they were nice decorator items. And so I still have some of those. So I brought some of those down to um, show in the background today. Uh, let's see the next. Um, okay, the next one, number five. If you're going to consider raising wildflowers, you're going to have to. Well, that's the wildflowers of New York. Just go on. Uh, this is this is uh, pinkster flower, which is a wild azalea, native azalea that grows in in our area, though primarily up in the northeast Georgia mountains and in the North Carolina and Tennessee mountains. But I do have some in my yard um, that. Um, actually were propagated here in Calhoun by, by a friend who, who raised wild azaleas. Uh, go on to the one that's got um, several books. There we go. Thank you. Um, these are books that I use for identification of wildflowers. And if you're going to consider using them in your yard, you need to know what you're dealing with. And when you see things out in nature, you need to figure out what it is you're looking at. Um, the orange book, Wildflowers of the Southeastern United States, which was published by the University of Georgia, is um, is a really good basic guide. It's it was originally written in the 70s, and I know that the botanical names of some of these have have changed over the years. But um, but I've used this book for years and make notes in there of where a flower was seen, um, uh, you know, just to to kind of document what I'm seeing. A more recent book, Wildflowers, uh, Tennessee, Ohio Valley, and Southern Appalachians, um, actually extends down into North Georgia as well. And um, I got it. Um, I belong to the Georgia Botanical Society, and they do field trips. And this was purchased, and the author was, uh, well, one of the authors was one of the um, uh, leaders of a field trip to Rome Mountain up in Tennessee about uh, four years ago, and um, and it's been a it, it's a very very good guide to southern um, to to mid south and Appalachian wildflowers. Um, Lee, I'd like to ask you a question. Yeah, sure. Um, that's a, it's kind of fun. It's kind of like pe some people are bird watchers and other people are wildflower watchers yes. and. And uh, you keep a, a record, keep track of the ones you keep, just like birders do. Yes. I also keep a journal in the car. And, and on trips, we'll write down where we went, um, what was in bloom in the yard at that time, and what was seen on the trip. And I had Great. years and years of, of journals uh, like that. Haven't been much done in the last 15 months or so. But, uh, but, but, but again, you know, we will some other time. All right. Well, you're going to stick around and join us uh, for a little roundtable at the end of the show? Uh, sure, I can. Yeah. All right. Um, Thanks a lot, Lee. Welcome back. Looking forward to you. Are you coming back next week? Um, I don't know. I've still got um, pictures of the ones in my yard. But well, why don't we schedule you, you back on for next week? that for we next can, week? We'll go with the vernaculars. Okay. That'll be, that'll be fine. That'll be Very fine. Very good. All right. Okay, folks, uh, you know, uh, not everybody can be with us live every week, and some of our regulars uh, uh, send their uh, portion of their segments in uh, via uh, uh, pre-recorded segments. 
usually that includes, almost always, that includes David Hess of the Bookman Bookstore in Orange, California. Uh, he's been a bookman for decades, and all that time he's been finding things inside his books as he opens them up and cleans them out and gets them ready to put on the shelves. So here we go with uh, David's pre-recorded session of things found in old books. Uh, right after that, we're going to have Gigi Best uh, joining us uh, with the benefit of anthologies. Gigi will be with us live uh, after this next segment. Uh, you know, folks, I think we might have lost some of you uh, a little while ago. We seem to have about a, a three or four minute blip in the show. Uh, and uh, if that happened, we're not sure why. could have been the, the service provider. Or it could have been a Facebook thing. But uh, we're glad you're back with us and we're able to log back in as you did. Hello, this is David from the Bookman in Orange, California. Wishing you a good afternoon and thank you for joining me for my segment on things found in old books. Uh, I found a few interesting items this week that I'd love to share with you and we should get started right away. In this little Catherine Coulter paperback, I found a couple of photos. They are rocket launch photos. Probably taken, they're hard to see because they're not real professionally done. There's somebody with a little little camera who stood on a shore far away from where the launch was and took photographs of the launch. And on the back, it's dated uh, 12 That's the uh, processing date. So I'm thinking that the <clears throat> rocket was probably around 05 as well. I believe it was a, a satellite launch, possibly. But what got me thinking when I found these pictures from 05 was that it not too long after 05 did the uh, kind of the everybody taking a picture on their cell phone and cell phone photos only. So the hard copies are kind of lost. So I think that finding old photographs in books is not going to be around too much longer. There's nothing to put in the book anymore, unless you take your photograph on your phone and put it in your iReader. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, so I don't know. This might, uh, finding photographs in books might be a, a lost item because in my course of finding things in old books, photographs have been one of the many things I've found in old books. And uh, so this is 05. So that might be the trend downward for finding photographs in old books. Uh, and on to the next thing. Just a teacher-child book for parents and teachers. I found, and it's not, it's interesting to me because what it is, it's an injection record. And it's interesting to me because of what we're going through now with the pandemic and people getting their vaccines. So this is a, a vaccine card, or not a vaccine really, it's for tuberculosis actually, a TB test. And it's dated 1972, and a little blurb about what the test was, and uh, the card that many people on online are taking pictures of the card now. Uh, this is uh, done by Kaiser, and it's in the uh, left forearm upper, and then they got their TB test. And I probably didn't take a picture of it and share it anywhere. They just 
stuck it in this book <laughs> they were just done with it so i found that interesting only because it was a uh, a card of of, of an, an injection <laughs> on to the next thing we have uh, in this beautiful gorgeous book on utah published in 1922 it's a it's a lovely book it's really uh, gold leafing and deckle edges it's very well illustrated i found this bookmark again the bookmarks are 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 uh, relatively common but this one was called the pig and whistle the pig and whistle bookmark and doing a little research on the pig and whistle uh it was a um, restaurant slash candy store and uh it was started in the like the turn of the century 1909 and it's it's heydays were through the 20s and they had a they had a pig and whistle out here in hollywood and, and apparently it was next to the Grauman's chinese theater and all the stars would go to the pig and whistle and uh and the, the bookmark is really quite striking it's it's a it's obviously from the 20s and it's 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 beautiful to look at it's great artwork and and it would it's a it's quite a quite a unique little item and on the back uh they, they tell you a little about a bit about what's what's in the candy and then where their locations are los angeles pasadena san francisco oakland and seattle so it was a west coast outfit so they probably didn't have many pig and whistles back there on the east coast but it's a gorgeous gorgeous bookmark in a gorgeous book and lastly on my on my finds of the week uh the experience of literature kind of a heavy tome and in this heavy tome right in the front part i found this what it is it's it's a picture of the archaeological guatemala tour and please accept this souvenir of your trip with our sincerest thanks for flying pan american we hope you will think of pan am when you're discussing plans for your next trip by zenith travel travel agency and in in the bottom is a picture of everybody who went on the the guatemalan archaeological trip a souvenir thing that was a little picture of, uh, of the world on the front and uh it was mailed to this person uh, and they lived here in la in california and, and included with that is 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 from the hotel guatemala biltmore just a list i think of the people who were there in the trip with little side notes i think of their spouses or whatever and uh and it was from the hotel Guatemala Biltmore. And this actually came, I didn't mention the year of the picture, it came here in 65. So this is from 1965. And uh, I'm assuming this is 65 as well. Thank you for stopping by this week. I hope you enjoyed the show and we will see you next week. And let me add, if you have anything that you found in old books that you would like to share, Send it to old book, no S, old book at ebookman.com and uh, include a little blurb about what it was and where you found it and uh, 
we hope to include it on this segment of the show. I appreciate you turning, tuning in and uh, hope to see you again next week. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Yeah, it got me looking at the, the notes. I was, uh, we we're about to move into, uh, thank you, David. First of all, thank you very much, David. Uh, we're about to move into the poetry section of the show with Gigi Best, and I was just bending over reading the comments. I, I asked some of our, I asked all of our listeners in the chat text, uh, did anybody want to praise a, a, a poem since we're moving into the poetry section? And we've got one here, The Wreck of the Hesperus. Yeah, okay, maybe we'll have that one for next week. I think we could find that one recorded online by some eloquent, deep, baritone voice. But first, this week, Gigi Best with, with us, The Benefit of Anthologies. We haven't seen her for a few weeks. She was away. Gigi Best is a genealogist and founder of the Best Richardson African Diaspora Literature and Culture Museum in Tampa, Florida. Gigi, I would like you to tell me the title of your book because I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce Thomas the Molodjian? Molodjian. <laughs> Molodjian. Thomas the Molodjian, free person of color and Civil War soldier. Welcome yes. back, Gigi. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, I just want to say hello to everybody. And I know we've been talking about poetry and we talked about individual poets a lot. Um, we talked about um, historic poets. And what um, I wanted to talk about today is because there are so many people, um, poets, that to me, the best way to enjoy them, and I learned this in graduate school, is to um, have an anthology. So I'm going to show you a couple of um, small anthologies. This is one that's African American poetry. And it's from 1773 to 1927. So if it's saying 1773, it probably starts off with Phyllis Wheatley. And then I have another one that I really like. It's called Native American Songs and Poems. So this one um, is edited by Brian Swan, but it's another one of these small ones. Back when I bought them, they were like a dollar. So they probably cost a little bit more now, but there's information you can get out of these um, poems. Now, this particular book, it's called Black Southern Voices, an anthology of fiction, poetry, and um, essays. So this is a really good book. And um, it has Frederick Douglass, Zora Neale Hurston, Richard Wright, Maya Angelou, um, Albert Murray, Nikki Giovanni. So you recognize uh, some of them are poets, but some of them are essayists. And so this is a really good anthology. Um, my favorite period is the Harlem Renaissance. So this particular book, it's called The Portable Harlem Renaissance Reader. And people probably know the editor, 
David Levering Lewis. And his name is on a lot of these books. And it has Romaine Bearden, W.B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, James Weldon Johnson, Elaine Locke, Richard Wright, and others. I mean, a lot of the women, Zora Neale Hurston, Nella Larson, Wallace Thurman, Jean Toomer. So if anybody else is a uh, avid Harlem Renaissance lover, then this is a really excellent, excellent book. This is an, an older um, book. Um, this one is actually called Dark Symphony, Negro Literature in America. So it has poems and essays. And I think this was copyrighted. Let me look at the copyright date. This was actually copyrighted in 1968. So the amazing thing is when I look at some of the newer anthologies, I realized that there were older anthologies, you know, that were done a long time ago. And um, the people in the Harlem Renaissance knew all those authors. Um, Arna Bontemps is a um, very prolific person and he writes a lot with Langston Hughes. Uh, so this one is called Caroling Dust. And it is an anthology of verse by black poets. And it has County Cullen, Arna Bontemps, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, uh, who's one of my favorite. He has a, a poem called The Negro Love Song that I love. And it's um, written in dialect. And it's like, seen my lady home last night, jump back, honey, jump back. Loved her hand, loved her and squeezed her tight. Jump back, honey, jump back. Seen her smile, a little smile and a light gleam from her eye. And a, it's a smile go flitting by, jump back, honey, jump back. So that's actually, I mean, I, I paraphrased it, but it's a wonderful poem and it is so, um, awesome um, when you start repeating it. Uh, we know Jean Toomer, and it says other poets of the 20s. So of course, that's the Harlem Renaissance again. I like to, a lot of the talks we've done lately have been about women poets. And so this book I've had for a while, and it is, let me see what the copyright date of this one is. 1990 by Rutgers University. And the interesting thing about this book, when we talk about women poets, it's wild women in the whirlwind. So it's Afro-American culture and the contemporary literary renaissance. So this is women poets. And it has Angela Davis, June Jordan, and I have a signed uh, poetry book by June Jordan that I got when I was in, she visited my uh, Morgan State University when I was in graduate school. Um, I also have some signed books by Nikki Giovanni and one by Maya Angelou. Um, so 
they had a lot of editors for this book. And Henry Louis Gates, who we all know very well, was one of the editors of this book, Wild Women in the Whirlwind. I love that title. And so the last one I'm going to show you is called Crossing the Danger Water. 300 years of African-American writing. So this has poems, essays, um, various articles. So this is another one of my um, favorite books. So um, anybody want to say anything or? I would like to say that Gigi, you are probably the wildest woman in the whirlwind. <laughs> you whipped out that poem. I just sat here mesmerized. <laughs> jump back, jump back. Jump back, honey, jump back. <laughs> jump back, honey, jump back. I am gonna commit that one to memory before the day is out. Yeah, that's that Paul Lawrence, that's Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and it's called the Negro Love Song. The Negro Love Song. I ain't gotta uh -huh. get that. And what's his background? You said he was part of the uh, the Harlem Renaissance period? Yes. Um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar was actually considered one of the early um, writers during the Harlem Renaissance. There was almost two periods of the Harlem Renaissance. So people like um, James Weldon Johnson, uh, W.B. Du Bois, they were all in the early part of the 20s. And then later on came Langston Hughes and County Cullen and some of those other um, writers. In fact, I have a picture. Hold on a second. Right in back of me. Of County of um, Whose life was too short. Too many of these, uh, these, these great poets and, and uh, literary artists uh, we, we lost before they even made it to 50. And uh, yes. just imagine uh, they, of the anthologies of their own work that could have right. been written. And so here's Paul Lawrence Dunbar here. Oh, wow. Very distinguished looking yeah. man. And so he has um, several poetry books of his own, but um, I've always really liked him. I've always really liked him. Well, back then, you probably only had one chance in a year, maybe in a lifetime, to get your picture taken. You made the best of it. I know, definitely. Langston He's, Hughes has been photographed a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Langston he, Hughes has. He's looking smooth there. All right. <laughs> How, how's, the, uh, how's the museum going, Gigi? It's going really well. And um, I did a, a new edition of my book. I updated it, and I did a revised edition. So I've been speaking a lot at different um, Zoom calls and functions. And my book has had a resurgence. And so people are buying it again. And um, I'm excited, really okay. excited about that. Uh, very good. And, Go ahead, uh, keep talking. Who's, who's, the, who's the publisher on that? And uh, uh, we can make sure we go out and find it. Um, which one? On your the, book. Huh? Mine? Book. Oh, mine. Okay, it is, I'm the publisher. Oh, okay. And, yes, <laughs> and um, if somebody wants to purchase it, they could go to um, bradlcmuseum.com, bradlcmuseum.com. 
I actually have, you can get it from Amazon, but it's better to get it from me because people can request me to sign it and I can sign it and send it out to them. But on our website, it's very easy to order. Very easy. Excellent. And that's uh, Thomas the Melungeon? Thomas the Melungeon. Thomas free, the Melungeon. The Melungeon. Melungeon. And it's, free yeah. person of color and Civil War soldier. Yeah, Civil War. And when I did the update, it's Civil War and Revolutionary War Patriots because I have both Revolutionary and Civil War. Oh, I see they just put the... Um, put the um, address up there. I was trying to see, I was trying to look in this real fast and see if I saw, I did see some um, James Baldwin, Langston Hughes, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. They have him here on page 36. Oh, this book right here, um, Dark Symphony. This one actually gives you the biographies of the different writers. So this book is really good to have because you, you know, a lot of times you want to wow. know a little bit about them. So what, what, this book what, what gives you information. Made them, why, what made them write the way they did? Absolutely. Yes. And it, yeah. it also tells you about their life, you know, um, and what was going on in uh, Harlem. At the time, you know, now Harlem has been gentrified. And so just keeping that history is um, something that that I think is really important that we bring those um, writers, uh, keep them, you know, uh, even though we're getting a lot of the young writers, we have to realize where did they get their inspiration. And when you talk to when 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 um Amanda Gorman has been interviewed, she talks about uh Maya Angelou and some of the other uh writers who influenced her. So I think if we go back and read some of those writers, I think we will be um very surprised at uh some of their works. Thank you, Gigi. That was wonderful. You stay in the whirlwind. <laughs> okay. Thank right. you so come, much. Everybody have a us. blessed day. Okay. Right. Keep smiling. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks. Welcome back. We're getting close towards the end of the show. Uh, we, we're going to finish up uh, this week's show uh, before we do with uh, a, a bit of recorded poetry. And uh, we had a few of them lined up. Uh, uh, Frost, Sandberg, Shel Seaton, uh, Sol- Silverstein, Ogden Nash, Maya Angelou, uh, Amanda Gorman, and others. Uh, but we only have time for one. And I think we're going to go with one that is uh, just an American author to the heart. Three time Pulitzer Prize winner, two times for poetry, Carl Sandberg. The other uh, Pulitzer Prize was for his Abraham Lincoln series. Here's Chicago by Carl Sandburg. Chicago by Carl Sandburg. Hog butcher for the world, tool maker, stacker of wheat, 
player with railroads and the nation's freight handler, stormy, husky, brawling city of the big shoulders. They tell me you are wicked and I believe them, for I have seen your painted women under the gas lamps luring the farm boys. They tell me you are crooked and I answer, yes, it is true, I have seen the gunmen kill and go free to kill again. And they tell me you are brutal and my reply is, on the faces of women and children I have seen the marks of want and hunger. And having answered so, I turn once more to those who sneer at this my city, and I give them back the sneer and say to them, Come and show me another city, with lifted head, singing so proud to be alive, and coarse and strong and cunning, flinging magnetic curses amid the toil of piling job on job. Here is a tall, bold slugger, set vivid against the little soft cities, fierce as a dog with tongue lapping for action, cunning as a savage pitted against the wilderness, bareheaded, shoveling, wrecking, planning, building, breaking, rebuilding, under the smoke, dust all over his mouth, laughing with white teeth, under the terrible burden of destiny laughing as a young man laughs, laughing even as an ignorant fighter laughs who has never lost a battle, bragging and laughing that under his wrist is the pulse and under his ribs the heart of the people, laughing, laughing the stormy, husky, brawling laughter of youth, half-naked, sweating, proud to be, hog-butcher, tool-maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads, and freight handler to the nation. Am I live here? Got my mute button on? No, we're good. <laughs> Sorry about that. Wow. The emotions we've gone through today in, in this show, we've it's been so lighthearted, we've been deep, we've been shallow, we've been long. It's it's a, a, a great show today. Lee, is Lee, Lee still with us? I've got a challenge for you, Lee. You think next week you could bring us a poem about wildflowers? Do we have time for me to ask her a question? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go okay. ahead. I've given you a challenge. Uh, you think you could bring us a poem about wildflowers next week? I can okay. do that. Sure. Good. Go ahead. Um, Gigi, um, yeah. Um, Dunbar chose to write in mostly in dialect, yes. um, which was kind of odd for, say, a Harlem Renaissance writer. Um, was this a, a way to sell more, to get his work to more people? Or what do you think his, his reasoning behind that was? Well, I think he wrote early enough that he was closer to emancipation. Okay. and how he believed that the enslaved spoke. Now, um, when you talk about dialect, there were issues with Zora Neale Hurston mm -hmm. because she was also an anthropologist, um, a cultural anthropologist. Right. So a lot of her work wasn't accepted um, or people had something to say because they thought she... Um, couldn't speak like, shouldn't speak like that, but she was a very educated woman. Right. And the thing about her that really amused me is my favorite book by her. She, when she talks about tea cake and she talks about the um, gophers and my husband's from Florida and I'm from Jersey. So <laughs> I thought gophers were little furry things. <laughs> and so he told me that gophers were turtles and people eat, you know, eat uh, gopher yeah. soup. Yeah. I didn't know yeah. that. Yes. And so when I read it in her book, 
I was, you know, their eyes are watching God. I was so fascinated by the gophers. But um, she brings you, when you read that book and it goes through the hurricane and everything, and um, she didn't write like that all the time, and um, but she was very close to the culture. And I think that's the thing with Paul Lawrence Dunbar. I don't think he was trying to please anybody at the time. He was writing what he felt. Right. Well, I, I love his books. I've, I've had a lot of them and have really, it, I like the way they flow, you know, way the, yes. the, 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 the way it flows, but, um, but they are, they are beautiful, but yes, I will find a poem for next week. <laughs> Wildflower. Uh, Wildflower. Okay, but also, I also, we didn't get to this. Um, this is what the, you got there the annual for the Georgia Botanical Society. It's called Tipularia, which is a wildflower. The picture on the cover is actually a Western wildflower from a field trip that the society took in 2018. But the article in here, and I wanted to, to mention this since we were trying to be literary about this, is about the flowers at Andalusia at Flannery O'Connor's home. So uh, Larry Baker, if you're listening, uh, this is for you. But there is a, a nice article in here about everything that grows in Andalusia. Um, so I just thought I'd mention that. All right. Uh, anybody else have anything to add be before we uh, uh, close out the show? Next week, our show, we're going to have uh, Jen Johnson with us. Jen is uh, managing the West Coast Book Fair from San Diego to Seattle, out to Albuquerque, up through Denver. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago was the East Coast Fair. Uh, coming up is the West Coast Fair. The East Coast Fair had more than 5,700 visitors and over 400 items sold. But the uh, interesting thing about the, the, the West Coast Fair this year are the number of seminars that they have lined up in the days uh, leading up to the fair, uh, Thursday, Friday, and then on Saturday when the fair opens. Um, the, the seminars, and uh, this is as much an educational event as it is a uh, book buying experience. Uh, also with us next week, uh, uh, Barbara Lowe is going to be back. She's one of our regulars, our Victoria ephemera collector. Uh, Lee Lynn will be with us, Lynn Thompson, Mary Kay is going to be back, and uh, some of the regulars and uh, some new book arts people. We just continue to have all of the fun. Finally, I'd like to point out, everybody stick around to the very, very end of the show because Alan has put together a great new ending credits with our names and what we do and where we are in case you want to get in touch with us. And finally, the music is from Kevin McLeod. It's called Gas Lamp Funworks. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap for the Rare Book Cafe this week. We are the Book Lovers Rendezvous where the topics are priceless and the conversation is free.
for joining Rare Book Cafe, the Book Lovers Rendezvous. The video version of this program was first streamed live on Saturday, April 17, 2021 on YouTube and Facebook, where you can still see the program on replay. The music for some segments in this podcast was composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. Other transitional music was provided by Anchor. We hope you'll join us the next time on Rare Book Cafe Raw. We're here for the love of books. This is Alan Smith.